Singapore is not just a smart city, it's a smart nation and I think increasingly it is also a smart hub because it is very intertwined in global networks. More recent years, uh, digital technology has become much more advanced. It's much more of a disruptive force. And you see this in many, many sectors. For example, in transport, you have Grab, you have Uber, changing the way how transport is done. In retail, you have Lazada, you have Shopee. Again, changing how things are bought and sold. Of course, in the last two years, COVID-19 has accelerated these trends even more. You see a more widespread adoption of digital technology. Companies are realizing that digitalization is not just a benefit, actually it is a must. And we see this in, even in our own uh, government grants. We know this because in the year 2020, when we had the COVID at its, its strongest and its highest, the number of grants that we approved in the government went up five times. Five times that of what it was before uh, COVID-19. Traditionally in the shipping industry, digitalization has always taken a backseat but I think with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it has actually shown that uh, digitalization is indeed uh, ex absolutely essential. And because of um, some of the restrictions in terms of travel, border restrictions, in terms of interactions, human-to-human uh, -human interactions, you will find that the reliance on digitalization gets uh, a lot more pronounced. So in the last couple of years, we've launched a key initiative. We call it Digital Port at SG. And PORT stands for Portal for One-Stop Regulatory Transactions, which means when ships come in, of course, they have to fill in certain regulatory information so that we can allow them to come uh, and conduct their business within the port. And it used to be that uh, you had to go to three different agencies. This particular initiative, uh, we estimate, has uh, saved about 100,000 man-hours per year entirely for the industry. One of the largest changes that we have seen in terms of um, how digital technologies has been affecting society and governance really is in the realm of politics, specifically the relationship between governments and their peoples. Increasingly what is really interesting and we're seeing a lot of that in other countries is 3.0 kind of digital governance. Right here we're talking about for instance the use of civic tech to enable citizens to have a greater voice in public decision-making. Citizens are able to provide solutions, provide their opinions on different types of legislation. As we become more digital in our daily lives, our exposure uh, to cybersecurity threats increases as well. With the advancements of technology and the reduction in cost of technology, uh, cybersecurity criminal activities becomes, I would say, relatively cheaper. I think the more subtle challenge is the word expectation. As we become more digitally trained, educated, accustomed to way of living, our expectation of business services has heightened. Our expectation of government services right, will be packed and benchmarked against all other private sectors, private organisations that you and I, as consumer and citizens, are exposed to. Well, in the next step, uh, the government is very focused on helping Singapore companies build up their digitalization capabilities. It starts with uplifting the broad base of companies, making sure all companies have a basic digital competency. 
and of course, helping companies in existing businesses transform their business models to compete uh, in this new future economy. And so we have a program called the Start Digital Program, where we work with partners who are natural touch points for these businesses. For example, the bank, or for example, the uh, trade association. At that point in time, we introduce uh, some support packages for them to say, okay, you know, you want to sign up for this, you want to build up this capability, you want to set up these things in place. Through the partner, we can help them do it. In the next phase, um, what's more important because one of the buzzwords um, is sustainability. And indeed, beyond the administrative sort of efficiency, we need to look at um, efficiency in terms of operational uh, matters. And that's true using data. Because for us, um, there's another key initiative, what we call Digital Oceans. Oceans actually um, stands for Open or Common Exchange and Network Standardization. Just imagine if you can exchange information on the time of arrivals, time you depart, the time of services required along the way, and even information related to the journey. So for example, navigational information, whether there's going to be a storm here, there will be bad weather somewhere, and you could avoid those which then consume more fuel. The heartening thing we've observed that became really quite evident during the COVID-19 pandemic is the initiative that was taken by people to use tech to provide goods and services to groups of people who are in need. Right? All these are the very positive aspects of um, collective action. On the flip side, we also see how this attempt to build greater social cohesion, social resilience is being threatened by problems such as hate speech, doxing and even the cancer culture. I think the danger of that is it can actually lead to the emergence of what I would say an invisible class of citizens. More and more people retreat from the public space into their private chambers of communication where they feel safe and more secure. So I think that has very negative implications for public discourse and social cohesion. With the digital journey that we all uh, has been going through, right, we all know that we are not confined uh, to our Singapore space. Do we really need to have CBDs? Will our new urban form take a different shape? So I will see a sh the, the industry to move towards more knowledge base uh, from that perspective. And therefore that call for the entire support system of talent, the entire uh, thinking through of the land use, right, uh, and allocation of our very scarce resource that we have. So very big topic, yeah. But I, I think we are headed uh, in the correct direction. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Before we begin the afternoon program, a gentle reminder to please use our conference hashtag if you are posting about this conference on social media. Our conference hashtag is hashtag SP2022City. This third panel is titled City Who Belongs. In this panel, speakers will explore established and emergent social relationships and ties in the city-state that foster a sense of belonging and community. Continued efforts needed to build social trust and national affinity will be discussed as well. The chairperson of this panel is Dr. Gillian Koh, 
Deputy Director of Research of the Institute of Policy Studies. She will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. May I now invite members of the third panel on stage, please. Good afternoon, one and all. Uh, welcome back from lunch. Um, it's my great pleasure to be moderating session three of uh, today's section of the Singapore Perspectives Conference. It's titled, City Who Belongs. Singapore is a country and a sovereign state, even if it's merely the size of a city, um, an urban space and a modern economy that today supports the livelihoods of 5.45 million people. Um, it's got to be a livable habitat for not only 4 million citizens, but also close to 1.5 million permanent residents, migrant workers, and foreign students. There's no better way to convey that interaction and codependence that exists between this, these two groups of people than to just peek into our households in Singapore, right? S something to the order of 245,000 foreign domestic workers make our households work. And I think there's another way to look into this interaction and codependence. Uh, a third of our workers in any average Singaporean workplace is foreign, and it ensures that our businesses are viable um, some sectors, the ratio is higher, some sectors, the ratio is lower. So as we consider afresh in this conference um, over these four days, uh, the seminal speech that my director referred to, the seminal speech by the late uh, Deputy Prime Minister S. Rajaratnam, he delivered this 50 years ago, uh, about Singapore, being a global city, what he called ecumenopolis, right? Uh, the world-embracing city. We must remember that at the closing of the speech, he said this, an open quote. In this address, I've dealt largely with the economic aspects of Singapore as a global city, but political, social, and cultural implications of being a global city are no less important. I skip forward and he says, the political, social and cultural problems, I believe, will be far more difficult to tackle. These may be the Achilles heel of the emerging global cities. Laying the economic infrastructure of a global city may turn out to be the easiest of many tasks involved in creating such a city but the political, social, and cultural adjustments such a city would require to enable men to live happy and useful lives in them may demand a measure of courage, imagination, and intelligence which may or may not be beyond the capacity of its citizens. For those people who cannot develop the necessary capacities, the global city may turn out to be another monster, another necropolis, which 
as we know, refers to a large cemetery with very elaborate tombs, a city of the dying and the dead. So the question of political, cultural and social framework for a global city to work is important. And I think we've had more than a hint of that in the first two sessions this, this day. We have come a long way. We found that our success as a global city has been underpinned by a framework that has worked. We are not a necropolis by any means today. And I think that it's, it stems from an appreciation, uh, an acceptance and appreciation of diversity. It actually was the reason why Singapore, the country, came about in the first place. Lest we forget, we are, of course, an immigrant society, and we've seen that generosity of spirit in welcoming difference in the past, uh, even if some were sojourners and returned to their homelands, as my director reminded us earlier. But many have stayed, and so we comprise people who are, of course, descendants of the original inhabitants. We comprise people who have been here for many generations. We comprise people who have just arrived and chosen um, to be here. In fact, let me cite one more quotation of the late Mr. Raja Ratnam. And he said, being Singaporean is a matter not of ancestry, but of choice and conviction. Many are here today in 2022 out of ancestry, but many more are making the choice and are convicted about being here and maybe even staying here. So I think this is the task at hand. There are many who are here not to be taken advantage of, nor do we want to take advantage of them, but are here out of a sense of mutual benefit. So the question before us in this panel is January 2022 going forward for the foreseeable future. How can we ensure that our political, social and cultural frameworks continue to be something that helps us be a vibrant global city, a country that has that generosity of spirit to maintain its fundamental identity of being an open cosmopolitan city, um, and rather than it becoming an Achilles heel. So this afternoon, we are very privileged to have two expert speakers to kick us off on that contemplation uh, on uh, here we have DS Cindy Kuhl, Deputy Secretary in uh, the Prime Minister's office. And she's had, of course, a history uh, working in the public sector. And I think you can in, you know, delve deeper into her background in the bio on the webpage of the conference. And then beyond that, we have Professor Ho Kong Chong, who's the head of urban studies at the Yale NUS College. Uh, a dear friend because he's also Associate Professor in Sociology at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at NUS. And we have very many common friends, and he does very interesting research on neighborhoods in Singapore. So what I've invited my two panelists to do is first for Cindy to give us, map out a broad macro view of who is in the city, who belongs in the city, 
who does this city belong to, okay. right? And then I've invited Prof Ho to draw on insights from his research to talk about the everyday live realities of how people do belonging. How do they develop a sense of affinity as a community to one another as much as to this geographical space? So with that, each of them has 15 minutes, and I pray you will give them the attention they deserve. Uh, and I'd invite uh, Deputy Secretary Ku to kick us off. Bottom line, who belongs in this city? Who does this city belong to? What are the few things we need to do to ensure that the political, social, and cultural conditions foster a sense of belonging, sense of national identity, that itself also continues a tradition, a historical legacy of us being generous to those who have come from far lands, who may want to, by choice and conviction, stay here, or us sojourners and who are here to prosper all of us as much as for us to prosper them. Ms. Ku? Thank you. Thanks, Gillian. I feel like there's a great task ahead of me being the first presenter to this very important topic. But so just to set out what I intend to do, really is to set out some basic facts and figure, information about what's already happening, okay. and then some questions that we have to maybe facilitate a discussion later on to answer these big questions that Julian posed to all of us about who belongs to the city and who the city belongs to you. I will propose some possible answers, but by no means they are final in any way. So really looking forward to the discussion later. All right. So to start, really, when we talk about sense of belonging and a sense of affinity, a sense of identity, we have a lot of words that's being thrown around, right? We're talking about building relationships. We're talking about building social capital. But maybe let me put a focus on one set of words that we as a government, we have been looking at, really just to focus our attention and to look at, and also to be able to organize how then we do something about it. You know, this really needs to go beyond just a discussion, but also what do we do about building that sense of national identity? So the way that we think about it is that there are three components. First, from a sense of belonging point of view, because I mean the question here, who belongs? Who has that sense of belonging? Why is this important? Because this is fundamentally about people. Um, regardless how you define them, where they come from, at any point in time you are here, do you feel that you should be here? Do you feel that others want you to be here? What is that sense of belonging to the space that you're occupying in this city that we call Singapore? And why is that important? Because when you feel that you belong, when you feel that there are people that you care about around you and people who care about you, you behave in a way that's different from when you're just an individual. Right? Where the community goes beyond the self, when nation goes beyond even community. How do you engender that? And what builds that up? That's one question you know, that we need to think about, either today or in the future. Then, with it comes also a sense of commitment. Now, it's slightly related, but not quite the same, because a sense of commitment also comes with it, a sense of agency and a sense of wanting to take action to improve the lives of the people around you, the people with whom you share this sense of belonging, that you want to make Singapore a better place for yourself, for the people around you, not just today, but also for the future. So that's what we call 
that sense of commitment towards nation building, right? How do we progress as a nation really has to come from everybody that commits to wanting to build that nation with us, right? Now, the third one that I, I think is a little bit cliche, we always talk about shared values. You know, these are the values that undergird all our actions, what we believe in, um, where we take the pledge and we say, regardless of race, language and religion, that's a, that's a set of values. But why is this particularly important for Singapore? Because unlike a lot of countries with longer histories, with natural affinity by race or by religion, our founding story is about a set of shared values. We chose to come together, we chose to bring forward ourselves as an independent state because of a set of values in our belief in multiculturalism, multiracialism, the way that we've developed as an open trading depot right from the start of our history. These are things that have molded our identity right from the get-go, and they don't come in genetic form. It really comes in a set of beliefs that now has been encoded in many ways, but, and you will see later, I believe continues to evolve for the better. So how do we make sure it evolves for the better and not for the worse? That's one of the questions then that we need to explore today. So just to share a set of vocabulary that I'm going to use today. Okay, some quick facts and figures. The numbers might be a bit small to read, but um, I think Julia covered some of the major numbers already. Our population today is 4.45 million. Um, three quarters of it are residents, one quarter. No, three quarters of it are citizens. Um, about 80% are residents, so citizens plus PRs, and about 20% are what we consider non-residents. So these are the migrant workers, these are the EP holders, these are the students, people who are here, not just for holiday, but really they are making a living here, but they are not seen to be permanent, you know, in our, in our community. Yet, they are here, right? I think this is especially salient during COVID, when many of them could not leave, actually, and in fact, many of them, we wanted them to stay, and it raises a lot of these questions about that sense of belonging. And the reason to the task, a lot of them actually have treated Singapore as their home and they've done a lot during COVID to keep the country going, right? Now, on the right-hand side is a chart that shows the population growth rate over the past 10 years. Um, you don't need to scrutinize all the ups and downs, but one thing to be very, I thought just to highlight is that when I talked about 80% of the population being resident, um, the fluctuation really comes a lot from the remaining 20%. Um, when you see dips, the most major one in the last couple of years, especially because of COVID, is really primarily because of the economic conditions that drive the demand and the ability for some of our transient workers, our non-resident uh, part of the population, to stay here. Many of them had to leave because the economic conditions were such that there was no more work here for them. You will see in other parts of history, for example, there was a dip in 2017, it was because of a weakening of the, our construction and our marine sector. So even a sectoral kind of development sometimes can affect our numbers quite significantly. As the resident population stays stable, just to be very clear, it doesn't mean that it's static. It's actually very dynamic because we have new people joining us every year. Every year, we have about 20 to 30,000 people join us as new citizens, as well as new PRs. And that's not a small number. Just a matter of comparison, we also have about 20, 30 to 33,000 new citizen births every year. So we're really replacing ourselves. We have this number of people who are joining us every year. 
Some come as adults, as new citizens and PR, some come as babies, but how do we raise them as Singaporeans? That is the question, right? So there is something that we need to do every year um, consistently to continue to refresh our identity. At the same time, within the community, we also know that the texture of society is changing as well. Even as the racial composition remains stable, we see a lot more cross-cultural families being formed. On the left-hand side, you will see that there are a lot more um, transnational marriages. It's not growing, but there is a sizable proportion every year. About one-third of them are transnational. On the right-hand side, you see a chart that's about inter-ethnic marriages. They're not exactly the same. It can be transnational and not inter-ethnic and vice versa. But again, where you have a family that's being constructed with two adults, coming together with a different background, it raises questions about what's the new identity that this family has? What's the influence that they have with the extended family and the community around them? How do they pass on their values you know, to the children they're going to raise in this family? And how much of it, I guess this is a question, is Singaporean? In the next part of my presentation, really it's about looking ahead to the horizon that's ahead of us. I couldn't find a very nice picture, but looking at this picture, where you look at a little sailboat, just imagine that it's Singapore. We're tiny, not just by size, but even if you look at, for relevance for the topic of today, is our history, our heritage. We have a very short history. Our identity is relatively new in the grand longevity of history. But the journey ahead of us is very long. And the, our sense of identity is really the one that is the vessel that's going to carry us forward into the horizon, across the seas with whatever challenges we're going to see. And sadly, you will see there are clouds that might be gathering, and there are challenges ahead of us. Why do I choose this analogy? Really, it's because my belief is that putting aside all the hard policies, what we're going to do with schemes, programs, initiatives, what's going to help us tide through storms, overcome challenges, has to be our national identity, our sense of togetherness, sense of belonging, our shared values, and that's a vessel that will be, that needs to be solidified to be able to weather the storms. If you think about where we are today as a little sailboat, the challenge ahead of us really is how do you reinforce this boat, build it up, even as we are sailing? That sounds challenging, and that's why I'm posing this question today. Some quick thoughts about the trends ahead of us that might shape why this is challenging. I think this has been talked about um, for a long time. Social media, technology, it cannot be understated how much it's going to affect us. The implications are far and wide. But I'll just zoom in on a few things relevant to today's topic. One, about how we form future relationships. Social network, it can be very helpful in terms of helping us reach out and have very expensive networks. It can also help us reach people who otherwise cannot be easily reached form relationships that otherwise cannot be formed. But yet, I think this will not be unfamiliar to everyone around this room. It also has a risk of causing um, echo chambers, right? Where relationships are formed primarily with people they're already familiar with, that you are happy to have relationships with, it's easy to stay within your comfort zone. So it can help, but it also has its challenges. At the same time, we also know that we have a whole generation of people who are what we call digital natives, who are growing up in a world where social media is very common, very pervasive, and they form their identities, partly in real life, but a lot of it in the digital world. 
Their form of individual identity certainly will also have an effect on how they form relationships with others around them. So these are some of the signals that we're looking at. We have been told that digital natives um, who have a lot of social media accounts, they care a lot more about their online presence, about their online image. They have a lot of friends or followers, depending on which language you choose to use, but they may have very, what we call uh, ambient intimacy. They have a preference for ambient intimacy in that they don't have deep relationships, but they prefer it more superficial. It is a bit, it's very wide-ranging, but, um, and it's asynchronous, you know, sitting down together to, to have a conversation sometimes can be very uncomfortable, much more uncomfortable to them than, say, having a live stream where people just comment, you know. So things like that, the way that they form relationships and from there derive the sense of identity is something that we need, need to look at quite closely. And related to that, and this is not just about addressing how to engage the digital natives and the young, so to speak, how does this relate to then how those of us, I <laughs> count myself in that generation, who are not digital natives, form that relationship with others. And are we able to bridge that different sense of reality? Which is my next point. The digital world is a totally different world, where different rules work, where what considers influence, where decisions are made, um, what, where one derives power can be very different. It is borderless, which affects, I mean, from the point of view of the government, it does affect whether we have leverage over shaping this world that our people, citizens or not, are accessing 24-7, all times of the day, in all corners, um, that we may or may not know very much about. But this sense of reality is important in that it is a context in which Singapore sits, both physically and digitally. We have a digital presence, but we also have a physical presence, just as everyone has a digital world, digital life, as well as a physical life. And increasingly, we know that moving forward, these two lives are going to merge, and these two worlds are going to merge. So in a digital reality, actually, how do we construct a sense of national identity? The boundaries are different, and the levers are different. So these are just two factors that we think are very interesting to explore further. Why that is important, I think, I just want to point, point out a process that might be quite intuitive, but important for us to think about, is that your lived experience actually is what drives that sense of identity. Conscious or not, we all go through a, sense, uh, a process of reflection and choices. Before then, our choices affect our lived experience, and that reinforces the, the, the beliefs and the norms that we then continue to, to, to adopt. So the evolution process actually is something that's happening daily on an individual basis, but now we also need to think about how it happens on a collective level, that means as a society and as a country and city. Now in this process, of course, the government has clear roles to play. Okay? I will not go through all the examples, but just to set out some um, uh, roles that we think we play. First of all, this process needs to be managed it's very dangerous to just suddenly fall off the cliff, so we do want to set up some guardrails to ensure that we are resilient to external disruption and influence, and to make sure that we set some basic standards to how we should behave towards one another in order that we can, can have this reflection process and to be able to reshape our norms moving forward. Second, lived experiences is key. This is not something that people can be told is the real new identity, but something that they need to live and learn to accept through living it. 
So positive lived experiences will be very important in this process. And there are two types of lived experiences that we want to promote. One is about building a sense of belonging by promoting opportunities for mixing. Because it all starts with interpersonal relationships, where we get to know one another, get to understand each other's perspectives, and start to build a sense of belonging. Second is about that sense of commitment. A lot of people would want to do something, but how do you contribute to nation building? and have that experience reinforce that sense of commitment. We want to build that positive reinforcing um, loop. So we also want to create more opportunities for people to contribute, either through, say, you know, conversations. We have a few rounds now of citizen dialogues, you know, with the emerging stronger conversations more recently, and there are a few platforms for partnerships with citizens and groups in the community. Then third, it's really about the most difficult part, the evolution of our shared values. With the shared experiences, with the lived experiences, sometimes we, re we recognize that there is tension. How we interpret a particular level of value or how it plays out in a particular policy, for example, makes people uncomfortable. You want to ask a question about, is this still relevant moving forward? Is this still something that we want as a country, as a community? So the government's role as well is to steward the evolution of our shared values through reflection as well as that civic discourse. Well, some of the experiences that we want to facilitate reflection on might be COVID, for example. What has our COVID experience told us about what we stand for as a nation? Mm -hmm. And how does that get reflected as a shared value? So this is the last slide that I have. Really, I look forward to the conversation about how we can work together to shepherd this process. Thank you. Thank you, DS School. Wonderful. Um, you've taken us through very many points, but I think what you were um, wishing to highlight was the effect of how we communicate these days and certainly how social media has uh, put a different spin on uh, what it means to be part of a community and community building. And uh, you are hoping to see um, you know, that interaction between what's online and uh, maybe in the daily lived realities of community in our heartlands. And I think this is where Prof Ho will fill a couple of gaps for us. Um, what's really happening on the ground and uh, is there any way to kind of balance up what's taking over our minds via social media and certainly that of digital natives? Not that it's a bad thing because we've seen how even with COVID, uh, communities have come together online to then do good offline and help the community, the broader community, cope through the pandemic. So, very anxious to hear how you would uh, complement what DS has said, Prof Ho. Um, your turn to tell us, uh, to share with us your take on the issues at hand. Happy to, Gillian. Um, so, uh, much of what I am going to say in the next 15 minutes is, is really comes from a book that I published uh, in 2020 called Neighborhoods for the City in uh, Pacific Asia. I, I looked at five different uh, cities. I looked at Bangkok, I looked at Korea, I looked at Taipei, I looked at Hong Kong, and of course, I looked at Singapore. That, the big picture you see is me surrounded by residents of Tampines Central in one of the engagement sessions that we had with them. Uh, please forgive the jargon uh, and over-referencing, but I thought this uh, very early uh, treatment by two community sociologists, Lee and Newby, 
gives us a, a sense of what the neighborhood uh, can do uh, in terms of uh, fostering a sense of belonging. Um, introducing face-to-face -face personal forms of interaction, you can see uh, at the neighborhood level those kinds of interactions with your neighbors happening on an everyday level. Um, one could argue the workplace or the school could perform this function of integration. But truly, at the neighborhood level, uh, the family is uh, brought together and presented to the residents on an everyday uh, level. Right? You don't see those kinds of connections uh, at the workplace or at the school because they, these involves individuals. But at the neighborhood level, uh, it's the whole family that is being presented uh, to, to other neighbors. Encouraging a formation of local loyalties and attachments among a residentially mobile, and I've included here, recently arrived uh, urban population. So the neighborhood is, is a social space in which uh, new residents new citizens, uh, permanent residents, uh, could be uh, encouraged to de develop uh, local loyalties and attachments. In the next slide, I will uh, talk more about how these uh, attachments can be formed. Uh, creating a sense of identity, security, and stability uh, in the midst of a more uh, more hostile, more uh, alienating world. Uh, perhaps not Singapore, because Singapore is a city-state, but something like this uh, is, is a bit more realistic when you talk about very large cities uh, where there's a constant transient uh, movement of people. And lastly, and I think most importantly, uh, for the purposes of our talk today, this idea of providing a local training ground for the development of larger loyalties uh, to city and nation. So, Lee and Newby argues that it is really at the, the neighborhood level that you have opportunities to participate and to contribute and to initiate. And these, these activities that you do at the neighborhood level then becomes uh, a basis for loyalties at the city level and at the nation, right? So it's, they argue, and I agree with them, that, that it starts at the neighborhood. Uh, sorry, more, uh, more quotations, but I think it's important. So uh, uh, this Gassan Haag was talking about governmental belonging. I think that's very important. You, you, we, we talk about the, the, the notion of citizenship, but ci citizenship needs to be enacted on a regular basis. It's, it's, it's hard to think about passive citizenship. Uh, and Hart makes a very important point that, that you, need, you need to think about governmental belonging. Belonging comes from the the practice of initiating things, participating in things, co-creating things, okay? So you, you, you have to give form to this very abstract concept called citizenship. 
right? So my question really is what opportunities and initiatives are there to, uh, to think about uh, these kinds of contribution at the grassroots uh, level, to, to, de to, to, to develop a stronger sense of solid, local solidarities and a stronger sense of citizenship. I argue that uh, the Singapore neighborhood has all kinds of examples. So if you, if you walk your neighborhood, uh, you see different kinds of uh, um, initiatives at play uh, from um, sustainability kinds of drive. I was at Topayo yesterday uh, for one of my projects and, and we see uh, the grassroots leaders trying to organize uh, uh, you know, a collection of, of waste uh, and recycling. Uh, elsewhere, in the same uh, uh, constituency, we see a chiller where uh, residents have, have gone out to get vegetables and fruits and left them there at the chiller so that whoever wants to use it, to take it, can just go up there and take and, and, and use the, the, the fruits and vegetables. So we need to think about, at that level, what kinds of initiatives are there to, to, uh, to contribute. Uh, whether people's ideas are heard and whether a group uh, at the neighborhood level can put these kinds of suggestions into action. Um, the second point is, 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 uh, is this concept of everyday nationhood. We, again, it's a, it's a big concept, it's an abstract concept. But uh, Michael Ski uh, has a very simple idea that the roots of us feeling national actually comes from the everyday kinds of routines that we participate and we take a lot of joy in. Very simple things like going to the hawker centre and, and engaging in and, and having the kinds of food that we like. I mean, uh, mirabus, roja, uh, hokkien mee, chao kway teow, we all like it, right? But, but these are the kinds of bases that form a common, a common platform for people to, to, to identify with. Uh, years ago, I, I ran a, a focus group I think for the HDB, and, and some, some of these residents talked with so much fondness about uh, their neighborhood hawker center because that's where they spend a lot of their time. And, and across, across uh, residents, they have the same kind of, of thinking. Lastly, so lastly, uh, uh, neighborhood and the census. Uh, here I, I argue that actually you don't need, I mean, this, this is a bit controversial, but in a sense, you can develop place belonging without interacting with your neighbors because there are many things that appeal to you when you walk the neighborhood. There are things you like. Perhaps it's the, it's the, it's the smell of cooking uh, wafting into the linkway as you walk. Uh, it could be, it could be seasonal, seasonal flowers and so on. So many residents in the same focus group talk about you know, the different spots they like in their neighborhood. And I think 
I think these are more passive ways in which as you engage the neighborhood, the place that you live in, you develop uh, a sense of place, place identity. Uh, I want to develop, uh, devote a bit more time talking about challenges and moving forward. Um, Gillian talked about who does the city belong to and who belongs to the city. Um, in, in a way, this idea of belonging is a very oppressive uh, expectation <laughs> and an imposition. Okay. Uh, uh, if you think about it, it's a two-edged sword, right? I mean, we want belonging, but but if if we keep if we keep harping on this issue, it, it can become oppressive. Okay. Um, the people who wrote about the city and about urban culture uh, one or two centuries ago, uh, people like Zimmel, uh, talked about the freedom of the city. People love the city because the city offers freedom. The very diversities that are in cities work to offer us freedoms because no one is totally accountable to a single group, because there are multiple groups, right? So when we ask about belonging, we also must think about the other side of belonging, and that is freedom, right? So it is both important uh, and it's also a challenge. The second, the second thing I wanted to talk about under challenges uh, has to do with uh, uh, new citizens and PRs, uh, and we hear of many instances, again, shared in focus groups where they talk about how uh, existing practices are brought from the home country, and these existing practices run into uh, local uh, host country kinds of expectations, and there are these kinds of conflicts right there. I don't think these conflicts are serious. I think, I think with, with some negotiation, these kinds of things uh, uh, can be resolved. But I think, I think it's, it's the question of how perhaps uh, the resident networks could, could help uh, bridge some, some of these practices and some of these local expectations. The third thing about uh, challenges is that so far I've talked about the 80% who live in uh, public housing. I think the 20% who lives in private housing, uh, there is no, um, I don't think the government can control that, uh, yes. Uh, because it's the private housing market. And actually, if, if uh, the market tends to concentrate because of effective uh, demand, uh, people will choose where they want to buy. Uh, they want to live close to where their own communities are. Uh, um, and so you, you have these kinds of concentrations. But these happen because the market 
uh, basically allocates according to effective demand. Uh, which allows me to talk about uh, perhaps uh, moving, moving forward. Uh, uh, I think DS, her statistics show that uh, there is increasing diversity. Uh, in 1980, one in 10 are um, foreign born. The statistics you show now is one in four. And it's because, because we are a small country, uh, these diversities hit us, uh, uh, quite impact on us quite, quite uh, importantly. Um, and so we, we end up in a situation of trying to continue to manage and uh, to deal with old diversities, but at the same time, because we are a global city, we see these kinds of new diversities. Uh, what would I like to see moving forward? I'd like to see uh, private housing without walls. They're not gated. I don't think that's impossible. In other countries, if you look at the gated community literature elsewhere, the concern was with security. I don't think security is an issue uh, in Singapore. So it is possible to think about uh, condos not really having walls uh, uh, not having uh, walls and security guards to keep people out. Uh, we, we, have, we have a perfect example of the HDB, this, this, this sense of openness. And, and it's, not, it's not a big issue. Uh, so this is something that we could think about. Um, the other thing I would want to suggest uh, I'm talking about 10 years in the future, perhaps 20 years in the future. I think uh, we're doing a great job uh, with rental housing, with uh, rental housing mixed with owners. We've seen new developments of that. Um, it is perhaps possible, you know, thinking in the future that perhaps rental housing could, could be more open and not restricted to, to the the lowest uh, income category. I think we can uh, continue to think about how to uh, allow uh, singles, for instance, and we expect more singles to, uh, to be there in the future uh, to, to pay a proportion of their salary and to live in uh, rental housing. So that's uh, uh, possible. So uh, with the 15 minutes I have, these are my thoughts. I could say a lot more, but I think I will deal with that when we have Q&A. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you, Prof. We have a whole bunch of questions that have come through online. I just remind participants here that you can also step up to the mics and raise your hand and we'll take uh, your questions and comments um, in this room as well. Um, the other way is for you to scan the QR code and take a look at the Q&A that is on the website. You can upvote uh, your favourite question. Um, there, is, there are quite a few, as I said, but I'd like to invite you, Prof Ho, to just engage DS Koo for just two minutes. DS Koo said it's important to develop a sense of national identity because actually we're not just a city but that we are a city, state and a country. She said, if you belong, you will act differently, you will have a sense of commitment, you will uh, grasp a sense of agency to contribute to a better 
I guess, country, Singapore, and that there are shared values that contribute to that sense of cohesion. So your comment was that this sense of, this concept of belonging can be an oppressive one, but is it something that is necessary when we talk about Singapore, not the city, but Singapore, the city, state, or the country? So would you just have a little argument for two minutes, please? <laughs> Prof. Uh, uh, DS Siddiq, why don't you Prof. kick Prof. off? Uh, because I'm sure you were uh, dying to, and then uh, Prof. Ho can respond. Yes, to his uh, comment uh, about sure. uh, possibly straining into the point of being oppressive when we talk about belonging, national identity, yes. defining who a Singaporean is, which is actually uh, a top-voted question. But I'll give that person uh, the <laughs> chance to have his or her question read out later. So, sure. have an yeah. argument. No, no, not really an argument because I thought it's a sound reminder that it's very dangerous if we make this a yes or no question about ah. do you belong or do you not belong? Yeah. Okay. Because it's not that, you know. Yeah. I think a sense of belonging or even a sense of identity is yeah. a multi, it's a textured um, yeah. uh, concept, you know. There are a lot of different aspects of feeling like you belong, but maybe there's just something else that it doesn't resonate with you. But that's fine. You recognize it as something that's important to other people, for example. That in itself can be a shared value. To value diversity can be a shared value. You know, so I don't think the two are necessarily like opposing ideas. I'm sorry to let you down, not a fight here. But then, but how do we then engender that? Because that is very challenging. How do you know where you draw the line? I mean, in the example that Prof had cited, neighborly disputes because of differences in practices, day-to-day -day practices, where you hang the laundry, can you hang your, your lap chong outside your house, you know, things like that. It's, it comes to nitty-gritty things that cause people to feel like you're intruding on my space, but right. is that the line that needs to be enforced or is that something that should be negotiated? Right. I thought Prof talked about it being negotiated, yeah. which is exactly my I mean, if you recall my, my three-stage process, you have a choice. When you have a neighbor who is hanging the lap chong outside and it's really smelly, you have a choice in terms it's of how you belong. It's fish. Lap chong is, um, lap -chong so is quite okay, right? <laughs> pungent. <laughs> Please. It, it, you have a choice of how you behave in that situation to have a conversation that allows a value of, I recognize diversity, but there's also neighborly friendliness and mutual respect that is also important, can we have a conversation about it? So I think that is where I think we would like to have um, a greater understanding in terms of how different things can sit together and not necessarily in opposite, um, you know, uh, it <laughs> needs to be in a fight for that. So way. you're prepared to uh, accept a more expansive view of, of belonging. So Prof Ho, we, no we, argument here. No, we are, you're, you're being naughty here. <laughs> we, are, we are actually in agreement. Trying to get more views, I see. No, I no we're in agreement because if you look at my uh, slide two and three, I actually talk about the, the different ways in which identity and belonging is built. But what I want to say is, is that sometimes this, this, this narrative of belonging uh, also runs against, you know, uh, the reason why people are, accept, are attracted to cities in the first place and, 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 and this, this idea of freedom and also creativity that comes from freedoms. 
is, is also important. So I'm, I'm, I'm just basically laying out two sides uh, to this issue of belonging versus freedom. I think we need both in the end. Okay. So I think the first question I'd pose from what's uh, coming in online is really who gets to define who is a Singaporean then? I think we have to admit that there is a national discourse about people being Singaporean and not being Singaporean, different. Okay, so the first question here is, um, who's asking the question who belongs? Who is defining Singaporean? National identity has been fairly top-down, practical. It's defined to suit the immediate or future needs. Um, how do we know what identities are natural and what are being shaped top-down? Um, uh, so that question was posed by Wen Li Tian. Um, but the second voted question, and I think it's disappeared here, oh, was many Singaporeans are descended from migrant workers. What's the rationale for not granting current migrant workers pathway to citizenship and integration? So you can answer the question from the formalized sense of who is a citizen to the, the more expansive view of who belongs. I, I leave it to you. But who's defining who's a Singaporean? I think it's easier to, to define who is a citizen. I mean, going by the legal sense, so maybe I'll tackle the more, um, uh, the policy question about what is the, what, what's the rationale for thinking about who to grant citizenship or who we choose to then, uh, well, not even citizenship, but even PR, you know, to have them be able to stay here in the longer term. And why do we not offer that pathway for migrant workers? It's a good question, it's a fair question, and actually if you don't like that policy, that is a fair question to challenge, right? Now, the key consideration here really is a numbers game. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, it's as simple as that, that we have a population of 5.45 right now. As I said, 20% are non-resident. We do have quite a strict policy around who we offer PR ship to. Um, the tightening came about about 2009, and basically you have to be a PR and spend sufficient time in Singapore before we will offer citizenship, right? I mean, it has other criteria about your, um, how likely it is that you can assimilate, you know, uh, will you contribute to the country? More importantly, do you have uh, relationships with uh, Singaporeans already in Singapore? Because that tells us whether you are then likely to be anchored in Singapore and whether you are likely to already feel a sense of belonging and all that. I mean, none of it is exact, none of it is uh, foolproof, but it tells us who we might prioritize. Now, around 2009, 2010, I can't quite remember exactly when, we tightened who we might offer a PR ship to. Because if you recall during that time, there was a great lot of discomfort about how quickly we were letting in people into the country and then once you come in, they cannot, they are not going to leave and then we're going to crowd out the locals, you know. I think those sounds still quite familiar now. Now we have kept it to a fairly moderate number, so it is about 20,000 every year um, that we offer uh, PR to, but not 20,000, 12,000 I think, less than 20. So. Is that too many? Is that too few? So far, we're just keeping it constant. If you feel that more should be coming in, who should we then give it to? That's the question. Should we be offering that to more of the um, migrant workers? There are a wide range, right? There are the EP holders, there are the WP, the S-pass holders, 
the students. We have a lot of applicants every year, and we mm -hmm. turn away very many of them. So it comes down to a matter of who you might prioritize. And so far, we have prioritized those who already have family here, for example, spouses and children of citizens. We prioritize people who have studied in our school system um, and have found jobs in Singapore, for example. So those are the kind of things that we look at. But if we are to offer a wider range of people, then it's about balancing across different types of groups who might be applying. And I would say that's more an art than a science. So we're not rejecting migrant workers, but they're just not that high in the priority right now because the primary goal for them when they came was that they wanted to work in this. They knew the terms and conditions. They came in, took on a job. They knew that they would leave after a period of time. The expectations are different, I would say. So where the expectations are different, similarly, we will also imagine that their interest in wanting to stay here for the long term and become a citizenship will also be different. The pathway is not closed. I think it's a matter of whether they will find other forms of employment, whether they might come back again, um, so on and so forth. They build deep relationships here, situations evolve, individual circumstances evolve, and really it comes back to if they really want to make a living here, the door is never closed. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So you mentioned the issue of pace in the past, and as was cited by Dr. Cheong early, earlier this uh, mm. today, um, and there's the space, but you also said that uh, there was public discomfort. So this discomfort uh, came from the public. What was the government's sort of uh, response? Well, the government response was then to slow down the pace, yeah, essentially. Which you've mentioned. I think the key thing there was to know that the door is not closed. It's really more a matter of how much space, both psychologically, socially, and physically, that we can make for everyone. There is a trade-off. I'm sure everyone around the room can, can agree. So the government's role is to make that trade-off on a very operational level, one application at a time, mm -hmm. but at a philosophical, uh, conceptual level, mm -hmm. this is something that we decide as a country, right? How inclusive, how expensive do we want the space to be? How accommodating do we want to bring in people who might then be less like yourself and maybe they leave after a while, for example, as what Prof said. I do think one thing, one element I forgot to address earlier, that sense of freedom is also that you can choose to leave. Right. Right? Okay. Um, I think I, this was a discourse uh, earlier as well, that often when we grant that peership, people come, oh, they're just using this place as a stepping stone, they don't really belong here, they didn't want to belong, but why do we judge them that way? It is possible to have an articulation about, with our sense of identity, that this is a place that some people stay much longer, some people come, do their part, and then they go forth and continue to be friends of Singapore, but are they therefore, you know, to be negatively you know, viewed. So I think those are the kind of conversations we can have okay. that will give us a lot more space you know, to balance that trade-off. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Prof Ho, your response? Um, there was a question earlier about who is a Singaporean. Yes. Yeah, so is this a top-down definition? Yeah. Or, and uh, what else is there in terms of sense of national identity that's not defined yeah. by that top-down uh, concept? Yeah. Um, that, sort of, that question sort of reminded me of another focus group I ran um, many years ago. And we were basically trying to figure out identity. And we composed the focus groups to involve new citizens from, uh, 
who are all Chinese, right? They're from Hong Kong, they're from Malaysia, they're from Indonesia, um, and from China. And the discussion actually <laughs> became very interesting because they started, they started asking, okay, if you can't speak Mandarin, you're not Chinese. <laughs> that that would exclude me. Yeah, it excludes me too. Okay. But, but it, was, it was interesting about how there were these preconceived notions, uh, a certain essentializing of what is Chinese. But I think that, that actually that um, episode sort of made me think that the process of being Singaporean is actually a lot more fluid. Mm -hmm. open to negotiation. I, I mentioned in my talk that there, there are certain everyday ways in which we developed a sense of identity, right? Uh, um, and I think those, those conversations will continue to evolve. It's very hard to say, okay, if you're Singaporean, if you're doing A, B, C, it, you can't. And I think as the, as the, demograph, as the demography changes in Singapore, I think that that idea of who is Singapore and who is a Singaporean will continue to uh, will continue to change. Okay, well that links us to a s sort of um, a couple of questions here. The common Singaporean identity ex expressed in food, language, and festivals is based primarily on Southern Chinese, Southern Indian, Malay, and Eurasian identities. Should we expect this identity to shift, or should we try to preserve it? Um, Again, there, uh, another one, um, this is also anonymous. Defining our national identity has become increasingly challenged by the influx of PRs and foreigners who bring their cultural norms and changing social texture. Um, you know, so they're different. And then this is also played out on social media. They're here, they bring their norms, as you said, needs to be negotiated, but there seems to be some rigidity. So. There's another question that says, you know, how can we achieve a better balance between the rigidity and the flexibility? We are a city-state, open. Um, we want to be able to kind of judge for ourselves. I love that question because actually I was, oh, this is such a challenging topic. I was very stressed about it. I asked, and when my, the friends around me asked me what I'm stressed about, I told them, oh, I'm speaking on this. And everyone has a different answer to what makes a Singaporean a Singaporean. Okay. One of the common ones, of course, is Singlish. Uh, because that is one that shows that you spend enough time here that you picked up the language and you get how it flows. There are no grammar books around it, but somehow you, you, know, you speak Singlish. Maybe it is a hawker center. Maybe it is living at HGB, having that experience. Maybe it's a school experience, for example. Mm -hmm. But my proposition would be that it's all of the above, but they're insufficient. I would like to say that the lived experience and everything that we love about Singapore still needs to go through a process of reflection and a certain narrative about why is this Singaporean. Mm -hmm. So if you love Singlish, and I do, why is it so Singaporean? It's because it's a mishmash of all the things that have come from our you know, forefathers, the Chinese language, the Malay language, how they all come together, um, our, our propensity for efficiency, so you know, everything very short, huh? you know, don't, don't mess with the grammar, no extra words here and there. So there is a certain sense of the underlying 
way that we live our lives that has created this phenomenon called the singlish, in the way that we communicate, because we've had to communicate across different contexts, and then it resonates in a way that allows us to get us done, to get things done. So, or hawker centers, for example. Why do hawker centers today exist? Because we want to bring things together into a clean place, so that efficiency is important, the diversity of food is important to us. It's kept in its current form for many years now, very low cost, also because we believe in it being inclusive. Mm -hmm. Food being something that should not be in just individual restaurants, but it should be communal. I mean, there are certain concepts in our most beloved lived experiences that reflect shared values, that reflect what we love about Singapore. Okay. So that is a reflection process and a certain narrative that if we believe in, we continue to hold on to it, it stays. Mm -hmm. We no longer believe in it and it needs to evolve if it evolves. Mm -hmm. Our food has evolved with the influx of a lot of Chinese and okay. they brought their culture here. Yep. We have mala potato chips now right. and we love it. It's made so in 7-Eleven. What's wrong with it? Okay. You know, so to a certain extent, I think there's nothing wrong with the sense of identity evolving as the complexion of a society changing. But do you have agency in shaping it? Yeah. My argument is it's not top-down. It is not left to other people shaping it. Be part of that conversation, and then you can be, you are part of the author of Singapore identity. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, love Prof Ho to jump in before we take three questions from the ground. Yeah. Prof, also say a little bit about how you see that sense of agency, that yeah. embedding of uh, uh, the culture or the evolving of that culture yeah on social media, because we also have a question about the effect of social media in redefining uh, the national identity as truly lived. Yeah, over to you. I can't say too much about social media, but I, I wanted to add uh, to Cindy's uh, comment about things that we hold in common and of the lived experience, because on top of that, I want to remind the audience that, that it, participation is very important because that's the basis of governmental belonging and citizenship. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough that you feel a common set of elements, that to be Singaporeans and to be Singaporean citizens, there must be this attempt to try and contribute, initiate, uh, and participate right. uh, okay. in order to build that. Okay. Social I media, I leave to you. I'll invite the people in the audience to uh, share with us their favourite everyday neighbourhood that's happening on social media. I think there are a few of those that are very interesting that are recreating Singapore's um, culture and identity. So let's go to the floor. Uh, let's start there. Um, please, uh, speakers, take note because we'll take all three and then you can decide uh, which one uh, suits you. Okay? Yes, let's start. Uh, okay. Thank you, DP Ku and Prof Ho for your sharing just now. So uh, I'm Kim from National Junior College and I wanted to address one of the things that DP Ku actually brought up just now. So there seems to be a new digital community that's being created with the prevalence of social media. And as much as the freedom of the internet seems to tout better minority representation and a lot of diversity of ideas, mm -hmm. it seems like there's also the prevalence of silos and echo chambers that have been growing, as, which then leads to this very polarised manner of thinking. So, without needing to be restrictive and actually undercut the main appeal of the internet, how do we... 
Hello? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, How do we then you. adapt to this new digital sphere and allow for true discourse of ideas so that everyone can belong? And how do we cater to people who may be less active on such uh, social media since there's pretty important discussions that are also happening online? And could you just say a little bit, Kim, about who you think is not in this space, just to explicitly spell it out? Who's not there? I think that uh, people who out. may be less active in such spheres may be, I guess, like older generations that are not as used to being on the internet. Because I think that the youth are very, very active on social media circles. Or people that generally just don't really like engaging in social media because of how new of a platform it might be. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for that question. Uh, over to the person there. Yes. Thank you. Hello, hello. Uh, good afternoon, my name is Malcolm from NUS High School Hi, and Malcolm. I would just like to tie a few concepts about the digital and the borderless nature of the digital world as well as the oppressiveness of perhaps the notion of belonging as well as I think my question ties a little bit to Kim's as well. So my question is, is there or rather should there be an onus or responsibility on the Singapore netizen in cultivating this sense of belonging and defining a digital border? Thank you, Malcolm. Um, and that question over there on that end. Uh, hello, I'm Kim from Republic Polytechnic. You're also uh, Kim. Oh, yeah. Uh, hello, Kim. <laughs> <Okay>. All right. <laughs> uh, so my question is, how do you think the increased consumption of uh, overseas media, such as TV shows via streaming services like uh, Friends on Netflix, for example, uh, influence the evolution of what it means to be sing Singaporean, especially in areas of like uh, social culture and shared values. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Kim, from uh, Republic Poly. So, um, yeah, just jump in. Uh, DS, please. Yes, I, have to, I feel like I have to because I'm so-called Gen X. <laughs> So not quite a digital native, but certainly spent my youthful years when it was exploding, it was exciting, everyone was going on social media and you build up, you know, your, your site. Very often you build up your sense of identity from a lot that's what's happening online. Mm -hmm. um, but yet, I also remember days when there was no such thing, right? Um, so, so in a sense, I think uh, exactly as Kim has pointed out that Kim, Kim A, Kim B, Kim A said, it's really about bridging. It's very hard for us to say that you can stop what's happening on social media, precisely because that is the freedom that is it's creative, it draws people in quite naturally. The, the occurrence of echo chambers and all that, of course, is the doing of algorithms and all that, which then the tech companies can do something about. So at a very macro level, at a governmental level, from a governance point of view, of course, there are certain things that can be done. We can, I mean, the EU is very forward in it, in terms of setting standards for what they will allow to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the community level, certainly there are also things that individual groups that are running certain platforms or certain communities online can set rules for how to behave. So those are things that can be done. But one key thing I need to highlight is that that still falls in the category of it's a guardrail. Yes. It's really just of preventing the very, very bad things from happening, 
but it's not going to create the constructive uh, bridging across communities and you know, putting people outside their comfort zones to have constructive conversations about how to come together and find commonality. I think that is exceedingly difficult if you do it at a top-down level. Lah. People usually say it's top-down, just like, what government will do, what government will do. But even at a community level, if you are to do something to a group of people, usually it's very hard to do it in a way that touches on the very intimate level of how you feel about somebody, which is what is creating that sense of commonality and sense of commitment to one another. So that's why this, this, this topic of national identity is so challenging, because the real change happens at a nano-micro level that you know, is very hard to intervene at a very macro level. So that's one thing that I just want to remind everybody that as much as we can set up rules and construct things and structure things in a way to facilitate certain things from happening, the real change has to happen inside people, which no government can touch. And, and that requires individuals to reach out, to form those relationships and all that. Social media in itself, I would say, is neutral. It doesn't in itself say that it is going to turn things bad. It's really a tool. Ultimately, how the tool is being used is still a choice. It's humans, you know. So you ask um, what we can do to bridge that difference. Actually, at the end of it is how much of what is happening in the digital world also translates to how people behave in the real world. So if I saw an example, you know, um, we have vigilantes online who will call out bad behavior. And some of this bad behavior, behavior, why they're being called out is because they have violated our sense of shared values, where we see injustice, mm -hmm. right? But why is it happening only online? Because it's on anonymous, it's kind of safe. Maybe we can try to find a way to promote more of that kind of behaviors in real life that allow people to also see how there's consistency in terms of the identity and the sense of belonging that's being created both online and offline. Similarly, there are also certain things that, that we do offline that's very hard to do online. So for example, that sense of place. That sense of place that um, Prof talked about, I really resonate with because not everyone likes to go online, have social media interactions, you know, share a lot about themselves in order to build relationships. But there are passive ways to build that sense of belonging and to be able to feel like they can connect with somebody or a place, and this place being Singapore. How then can we do that online as well, such that there is a way for people to participate without having to feel that they have to put themselves out there? Um, the digital divide that Kim talked about is also about the older generation who are not as comfortable online. That is a much broader idea also because a lot of services are being brought online. So it comes down to not even your sense of identity, but even whether they continue to live a comfortable, convenient life that now is being created digitally. So that topic is a, a very broad one. I think it's worth delving more into. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, there was a study done by an advertising firm, the, the McCain Group, uh, some time back. They did a worldwide survey of young people uh, and social media. And one of the things that came out was very interesting, that is, because of the things that are out there, uh, authenticity uh, becomes a real value that's being held by young, th that young people want more and more of. I thought that was really interesting uh, because uh, to the three young persons who raised uh, the questions, 
there, there is, I think, a role for you to think about the ways in which you could uh, build through uh, social media platforms uh, the kind of society you want. Uh, I think uh, um, I think countries like Korea, for instance, are using social media platforms uh, at different levels to see whether there is some convergence at the local level to what they want to see. What they want to see uh, for their neighborhood, uh, these kinds of discussions, rather than doing face-to-face, -face, you, could, you could do it in social media. And so my, my challenge to the three young persons who uh, spoke up is for you to think about what role you, you could have uh, in the social media to create uh, mm -hmm. a stronger Singaporean identity. Okay. Um, on the polarizing effect, uh, DS, you talked about the guardrails, so that's what you were referring to for the more kind of polarizing sort of identities that are happening online with regard to belonging in Singapore, but you also mentioned bridging, bridging between social media platforms and bridging to the real world. Prof Ho, uh, you know, there are questions here about um, how neighborhoods, well, let me just read one. Neighborhoods are natural arenas where residents can interact, collaborate, learn how they can empower each other to contribute towards their collective identity, culture, and spirit. Um, so we're talking about bridging on platforms, but there's bridging between digital and real life. What have you got to say about how effective our neighborhoods are today in light of how it is actually quite attractive to just find your own gig online. What is there in our neighborhoods to draw people out to interact with real-life people and build this collective identity that is not digital or virtual? How have you made the neighborhood attractive? Well, Gillian... Uh... I think you did a study on Tampines. I think I did, there are I quite did. a few. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Uh, I'm giving you a chance to no, sell what you do. No, and, and I'm trying to be realistic here. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I, I have a, a concept of a minimal neighboring neighborhood simply because people in their everyday lives are just too busy. Okay, they're busy with their friends, they're busy with their family, they're busy with school, and they're busy with work. Uh, and so I think even with a minimal uh, neighboring model, uh, uh, this kinds of solidarities can be built okay. for, the, for the reasons I mentioned in my talk. Yeah. What are some of the instruments? Common uh, walkways, playgrounds, uh, I don't know. All that. Um, the, the kinds of amenities that are outside there for neighbors to for residents to enjoy and to meet their neighbors, uh, opportunities to participate at the neighborhood level, there are many. Okay. So, so these are the various ways in which uh, you, you can connect. I mean, it's not, the neighborhood is not the neighborhood of small towns where people know each other, where you can, you can come together and sing Kumbaya. I mean, it's not that. Uh, I think, I think, <laughs> The, the examples I give is a minimal model. It's not a maximal model. Okay. Uh, yeah. In, in, in high-rise, high-density Singapore, uh, those kinds of things, uh, you, have, you can't, can't exist. 
Okay. Uh, yes, cool. Do you have your favorite one or two mechanisms for creating this bridging social capital uh, that you talk about? Actually, I think that continues to evolve. So I think we are always experimenting. I think what uh, Prof talked about in terms of that that boundary of neighborhood in the digital space, those boundaries don't exist. So it's not that you have to be a Tampanese resident to be part of a certain community. If you love Tampanese and there's an online community about Tampanese and the awesome development that's happening there, you can yeah. participate. So I think the key idea with social media, the, the very wonderful thing about it is that participation is very easy. Mm -hmm. Participation is asynchronous very often, so you can do it in your own time. Um, and participation can be very varied. You can choose how you participate. It's not that you have to commit two hours to sit there in a focus group. You can give a comment. You can upvote something. I think that gives people a lot more choice in terms okay. of how they participate, which facilitates that sense of commitment and their ability to shape the environment in, in whatever that topic might be. So, for example, I know that there are a lot of people who have set up, say, their own um, Facebook private group for their new BTO that's coming up. Okay, And then good. you share news about right. how things are coming along. You know, you give each other tips about how to prepare for your new home. You can even, you know, share contacts for contractors, whatever it is. You can even start building that sense of community and sense of neighborliness before the physical space is even ready for you. I think those are wonderful examples where people who have taken the initiative mm -hmm. together with people who want to participate can create that enabled by social media, but the social media itself is insufficient. Okay. So I, I think those instances are things we should celebrate and maybe those serve then as inspiration for others. Because I think there are many different ways if people could be creative about it, you know, to, to use um, technology as a tool. All right, thank you. Um, I'd like to take that question over there. Kalpana, uh, research fellow at IPS, yes. Hi. So as a researcher of social integration, specifically binational, bicultural families, I spend a lot of time with people who have decided to eschew labels and really mesh their lives together um, as humans, right? So if we see this group as a microcosm of the integration that we are aiming at as a nation, when will we be ready to move past neat labels like CMIO? To accept that in real life identities are a lot more porous and fluid. Comment or do you want to respond or react? Prof. Ho? Well, identities are already uh, fluid and porous. I, I think we, we recognize that. Uh, as we said, uh, the diversities uh, will even be greater moving forward. I think BS said that. I, I agree with that. I think the challenge is, is what keeps DS up at night and what keeps me up at night as well. <laughs> that is, how do we develop a, a strategy that, that, is, uh, that both insists on common things that we agree on moving forward with regard to mm. identity and belonging, but at the same time, uh, be flexible enough because our society, our, our city is, is changing so fast. Mm -hmm. I think that is the challenge. Okay, so if culturally we are, we are allowing ourselves to be more flexible and adaptive, then what is it that makes it so important that there's a definition of who's a member of Club Singaporean? 
rather than just broadly speaking a member of Club Singapore. Why does it matter then? I think um, that side of the house of the argument is losing it this afternoon. So please, <laughs> why, is, why does it matter? Actually, that's one of those things that uh, it does keep me up at night. Because that's, it's a common question, right? Why do we still need a CMIO definition or label? Um, the crux of the question is, what is attached to the label? What are the implications of the label? If, the, if, if your starting assumption is that the label equals identity, I would say that's not how we think about it. Right. Right? Because we already know there are plenty of Chinese, let's say, who can't maybe speak Mandarin. Can't speak Mandarin. Um, we have stories of um, Chinese children who have been adopted by an Indian or Malay family. Right. You are raised Malay. Why, why are you Chinese? Are you Chinese? What makes you Chinese? I think those questions we already know that trying to categorize people into neat boxes never works. So okay. we are under no such delusion. But why do we still keep it? Yes. For a, for a sizable proportion of people, they still align into those boxes. We know that there are people on a very thick edge of the box, fair enough, but there are some people who fall in there. And unfortunately, to be totally realistic, race is a very important identifier when people form their sense of identity, right? So as a Chinese, if you have been raised in a very Chinese way with all the Chinese traditions, cultural practices, you celebrate all the festivals and all that, you identify strongly with all the you know, very Chinese things, and you sit in that category, you do tend to identify yourself in a way that draws a difference with someone who is not Chinese. So that is a human psychology, and then you behave in a certain way, and we are very cautious about it. We are fearful that having those differences, if not managed well, will cause societal problems, we have racial riots, that's not unheard of. So we want to be able to manage it. So having that as a label, allow us to administer policies mm -hmm. that allow us to manage, essentially. So it's an administrative tool, mm -hmm. it's a piece of information that allows us to take action. Um, so, so if you think of it from that point of view, how will this evolve? It really all comes down to how much then do I need to intervene and to manage? Right. When we get to a utopic state where indeed, you know, skin color is no longer a question, people do not use race as an identifier at all, then it's meaningless because I don't need to draw, I don't need to differentiate our policies based on race. Today's situation, um, I know that it's very sensitive. We have only a few policies that takes reference from whether you know you are a Chinese or Malay and so on and so forth. The most obvious one that I think everyone knows about is the um, ethnic integration policy, where you're assessed to housing. There is a quota, so it is tagged by race, but that's very explicitly because we want to create a common space right. where people live in the same neighborhood, they have the opportunity to meet people of a different skin color and all that, and to form those relationships. So it's with that purpose that we administer such a policy. The day, just as an example, where we no longer need to have this policy and hence no longer need to use this information called race would be when people naturally choose to live in very diverse neighborhoods, mm -hmm. where they choose to live where not their own kind would live, for example. Whatever that label is, so today we're talking about race, but it could be any other kind of label, then I don't need that policy. This piece of information is no longer useless. As I trim down the number of policies or administrative levers I need to in order to manage the differences, it just becomes more, less and less relevant. 
So I think this is one situation where the policy is responding to what society requires, and at this point it still requires some, so we still keep it. But should one day we evolve to a state as a very mature society where these differences really don't matter at all, then that label will naturally drop off. That's my belief. Okay. Do you want to add anything, Prof, before yeah. I go to the, fi the yeah. question there? Yeah, there is, uh, there is you know, a, a saying in one of these T-shirts that uh, I'm quite tickled with, and that is the phrase, same, same, but different. <laughs> but we are same, same, but, but different. We, we draw identities from things that we hold in common and things that distinguish us as an ethnic community. Okay. Uh, I think it's important, you know, uh, to think about the way forward in this, and uh, maybe not so much focus on CMIO, but go back to this notion of governmental belonging. That is, uh, that citizenship needs to be experienced in order to be real. And so if, if we can focus on participation, those kinds of bridges, uh, uh, an understanding uh, could be moderated. Yeah. And the broader, co and one of the contexts for today's conference is really that the you, you know URA is going through uh, its uh, you know long-term plan review of the long-term plan concept plan of Singapore, and I think we had a good session just now that highlighted how citizens are being brought on board for that consultation yeah. process. And then the question is about what more of the other one quarter. Um, I think we, in the COVID pandemic, we looked at how uh, migrant workers, uh, you know, have to have their space. And it turns out if we don't give them that space, uh, it also undermines our overall health and security. So uh, please bring that on board when we do the closing comments. We'll have a final question from Someone back there, please, may I invite you to pose your question? Hello. Hi, I'm Lynette from Nian Polytechnic. So um, uh, you mentioned earlier about the ethnic integration policy, which was introduced in 1989. So it's been about 30 years since that policy has been introduced. So in your opinion, how effective is this policy and does it really serve to create more harmony than discourse? Like for example, if a block of HDB um, a family's application was rejected because of their race, will this serve to create harmony or discourse in the long run? Okay, thank you, Lynette. So it's almost time to round up. We have just about an, a minute and a half, I realize. So would you want to just respond to Lynette, but also add your final uh, thoughts about why citizenship matters to Singapore? Not just a city, but a state. But a state that also has to be a city to attract many here. And I, there was one question that says, not, some non-residents have been left disgruntled by their experience here during COVID-19. Many have flown the coop. Do the panelists see this as a bump in the road? Or will normal service resume after the pandemic? So that's what we're trying to balance between the openness of a global city that works very well because that's useful livelihoods for the people who live here. But then the people who live here need to know that they belong because you're depending on them for a sense of commitment to defend the country, which is not just a city.
closing comments, let's start with uh, Professor yeah. Ho. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I can't say too much about the EIP, uh, except that it is uh, meant to be inclusive. That, yeah, that meant the to include. neighborhoods that we live in through the EIP uh, could be made more inclusive. Uh, the idea of citizenship and whether it matters, of course it does, because there's a lot of uh, stakeholding uh, that is involved in citizenship, which is why I keep pushing for uh, uh, that citizenship has to be experienced. Okay. Uh, and, and if that happens, then uh, this idea of participation and contribution uh, will, will continue. Okay. Thank you, Prof. Ho. Diasco? I think the very um, slightly simplistic answer to whether the EIP has worked still relevant, whether it promotes, whether it's worked. EIP essentially is a quota system. So the day when the quota is no longer biting, as it no longer stops people from making purchases or forming a certain enclave, will be when it's no longer relevant, right? When it no longer stops the behaviors that we don't want, um, which would be the formation of enclaves, then that's when we think it's time to uh, sunset the policy, essentially. Today, the fact that there are still a lot of applica applications that potentially could be rejected because they have met the quota means that there is still a tendency for people to want to congregate in a way that we think doesn't promote, uh, promote cohesion and that kind of shared lived experience in a neighborhood. So that's why I think that is something to think about. You know, when people are unhappy when they hit the quota, um, in the grander scheme of things, we are looking to build that lived experience after they've gotten the flat for many, many years after that, including their children and all that. So that momentary disappointment is something that we have to prepare to bear because we're trying to build a community beyond that individual uh, household. Which I guess those citizens applying for the flat should appreciate should at appreciate, a higher level. Yes. And that's um, exactly the kind of, um, I think, the citizenship participation that Prof has been um, very strongly advocating and, and for. And the contrast Prof mentioned is that when you leave it to the private sector, you've seen yes. the clustering of many of, of certain groups. They, there, there is that proclivity to uh, yes. cluster even within Singapore, exactly. tiny Singapore. Yeah. Okay, so, so if you leave it to the market, as we have certain estates, uh, you know, as the test case, then that's mm. what happens. Anything else before we wrap? I think just to uh, reiterate, I think what Prof has said, this thing about citizenship participation as a way to reinforce citizenship is something that we don't take lightly. So even for non-residents, I think, Gillian, you, you have yes. been talking about yeah. those who are not PRs, they are citizens, but they are also here, right? Actually, who is advocating for them? Who would be able to exercise citizenship for them even when they are non-citizens are the citizens of the city, right? right? Because at the end of it, they do have a voice as well because we do have a lot of groups, NGO groups, government-led groups also that do reach out to them and get their, their input, their comments, try to meet their needs and so on and so forth. But if that's not adequate, that's up to all of us to do something about it, okay. right? Because I think at the end of it, if we believe that this is a society and a city that's inclusive, there's a home that is for people who by legal definition, are non-residents, but they are here, then that's something that we can change. Okay. Either in your immediate neighbourhood, because you can also have ground-up initiatives around those things, and there are a lot of these initiatives, or you want to advocate for higher-level change, 
maybe use social media, maybe you want to speak to your MP. There are a lot of things that you know, every individual can do. So okay. I think this, my final note is really just a call to action that um, today's topic is a big one, but it needs to be tackled at a very individual level. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. I know I have a lot of friends in the room who want to expect me to say that that interaction about citizens speaking for migrant workers has a very checkered history. <laughs> but of course, we're now in a better space where uh, citizen voices for migrant workers has come up and it's uh, uh, slightly more welcomed. And we saw that in the pandemic, there's a, a, a more um, a listening year. Uh, in MOM and in government to uh, see how much better we can do for our large migrant workforce here. Um, so with that, I hope that uh, you will join me in thanking our speakers who have really uh, been very, very kind to take all our questions uh, this afternoon and give us their um, hard points of view, their hard truths about the challenge of balancing uh, the, uh, the, 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 the fact of us being a city a global city after Raja Ratnam's vision, um, and, and yet being a country, a nation, uh, with a real question of who would stand up for us, never mind belonging, but who would stand up for the concept of Singapore if push comes to shove and we face a crisis? Somebody has to, uh, and uh, we, we really need to confront that, that very hard scenario. So please join me in thanking them in the usual way. A round of applause. Thank you, DS uh, Ku and Prof.